Thank you, Chris. I, uh, testimonies just mean more than anything else. And uh, Laura, your testimony was awesome too. And I, Laura, I'm talking to you. I just want to, I know your dad, your dad's important. I get it. But I want you to know how much I appreciate the testimonies that you give up here every week. They're awesome. So um, now I'm going to attempt to get through this without. I think I've spoken about as much as I can without reading, so I'm just going to go. Um, the subject today is fear not. And I've got a big question mark by it because fear is one of the things I deal with, seems like continuously. So here we go. And a side note before we begin, a minister friend of mine once told me that nearly every good sermon is full of unoriginal ideas and plagiarism. In my efforts to reduce the plagiarism that exists in this presentation, I must give credit to Ray Pritchard. I know not from whence he hails, but his work formed the basis for this presentation. Candy Medrano published an article called Top 10 Strong Human Fears. These are the top fears shared by people everywhere. The list in many ways is self-explanatory. And they are losing your freedom, the unknown, pain, disappointment, misery, loneliness, ridicule, rejection, death, and failure. Many of these fears are tied together, such as death and the unknown, rejection and ridicule, pain and misery, and failure and loneliness. We can also observe that these are mostly fears that describe an inner condition of the heart and are simply part of the human condition. A list of more specific fears is provided by a Gallup poll which asks the question, what scares Americans most? In order, the answers are snakes, public speaking, heights, being closed in a small space, spiders, needles and getting shots, mice, flying on an airplane, dogs, thunder and lightning, going to the doctor, and the dark. This is obviously a much more concrete list. And while I don't fear snakes, I need to know they're there. Public speaking is probably at the top of my list. And uh, I would therefore declare that this sermon may be more for me than you, uh, although I hope you find it beneficial. I've had a phobia about public speaking for as long as I can remember. It is characterized by sleepless nights, upset stomach, high blood pressure. The list goes on. My first recollection of this overwhelming fear was in the fifth grade when I qualified for the spelling bee competition at school. Once the phobia took over, I promptly refused to represent her class in the competition, not for lack of spelling ability, but out of a fear of having to appear and speak before the entire student body. Since that time, I've had the opportunity to share communion meditations many times over, but to this day that fear still grips me. It is true I don't shake so badly that I experience vocal vibrato like I used to, although it may show up yet. But you will probably notice that I will run short of breath and will seldom look up from what I'm reading. It is in this moment that I must make application from Joshua 1.9 where God said, Be strong and courageous, and I must trust that he's with me. 
Concerning the rest of the list, in my old age, I find that being closed in a small space and going to the doctor create much more discomfort than they used to. Spiders, needles, dogs, mice, or thunder and lightning have never created much of an issue for me. While I enjoy the fact that flying can take me from the cold and snow and just a few hours to basking in sunshine in a more southern climate, I do get a certain amount of tension or even a sense of panic if the captain throttles back too much and the plane sinks when climbing after takeoff. And while I may not fear the dark, I sometimes find little noises waking me up with a start in the middle of the night. We all have our fears, don't we? Fear is a basic human emotion. Your list won't be the same as mine, but we can all identify with some things on the second list and most of the, list, most of the first list. If we aren't worried about mice, we certainly fear rejection by those we love. And we all think about our own death from time to time. When will it happen and how? And if we're wise, we also wonder, what then? I'm not surprised that fear of failure comes in at the top of the list for many people. How frustrating to feel like you've wasted your short life on this planet Earth. It's a terrible thing to conclude that your life was a bust because it didn't turn out the way you hoped it would. Somewhere in all our thinking, God has to figure into the equation. There must be a reason that the Bible tells us in various ways and in various places to fear not hundreds of times. Fear is such a basic human emotion that many of us constantly live in the grip of fear, worry, and anxiety. God told us fear not because he knew that we would all wrestle with fear sooner or later. What do you do when your fears seem to be winning the day? What if you pray and God still doesn't come through for you? If you're like most people, you begin to lose hope and you wonder why you bothered to pray in the first place. Deep in the soil of your heart, little seeds of doubt take root, growing up into a harvest of frustration and anger. It happens to most of us eventually. Some of the best men and women of the Bible struggled with their inner doubts when their dreams didn't come true. Abraham's story illustrates that truth. In order to get the context, we have to go back 40 centuries, back to a time long ago and far away, to a place called Ur of the Chaldees, a large city on the banks of the Euphrates River. That river still exists. It flows through Iraq and empties into the Persian Gulf, not far from Kuwait. Historians tell us that Ur was one of the most prominent and important cities of the ancient world. In Abraham's day, perhaps some 250,000 people lived there. There was an ancient university in Ur and a large library. Ur was known as a center for mathematics, astronomy, and international commerce. It was much like Chicago, New York, London, or Singapore. What else do we know about Abraham? He's first called Abram, and later Abraham, as the story begins. He's about 75 years old when we meet him, which in those days would be considered middle-aged. He's a prosperous businessman who is no doubt well-known to many people. He and his wife, Sarah, first called Sarai, have no children. It's against that backdrop that God speaks to Abram for the first time in Genesis 12:1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Later God promised to give him descendants like the dust of the earth in Genesis 13:16. Ten years quickly passed without any sign of children. Abraham is almost 85 and not getting any younger. 
Sarah is far past childbearing age. And even though she is just, he has just won a great military victory, nothing can satisfy his deep desire for his son. Only those who have gone through this experience can fully empathize with Abraham and Sarah. There is no sadness like the sadness of wanting children of your own, but being unable to have them. Even in this day of modern medicine and advanced technology, many couples wait for years and some couples wait forever. I think Abraham's greatest fears stem from the fact that God did not seem to be in a hurry to give them a child. How much longer would he wait? Why had he delayed? Had God changed his mind? Was there some problem he didn't know about? Had they sinned? Were they doing something displeasing to God? Why was Sarah's womb still closed? If God had promised, why was it taking so long to be fulfilled? Should they go to plan B? All those questions were running through Abram's mind. God knew exactly what his servant was thinking. He saw the doubt and he understood the fear. Now he moves to reassure Abram that all will be well. The time has not yet come for a child to be born, but it isn't far off either. I am your shield. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. It's in Genesis 15, verse 1. There are at least four reasons Abram could have doubted God's promise of a son. One, he was too old. Two, many years had passed since the promise had been given. Three, nothing like this had ever happened before. Four, his wife Sarah also doubted God's promise. When you think about it, there was no reason to believe. No reason except that God had promised to do it. The question's now simple. Will God's promise be enough for Abraham? In answer to that question, God declares, I am your shield. We should not think of a small shield that covers only the chest area, but rather of a shield that stretches from head to toe and completely protects every part of the soldier's body. Such a shield offers complete protection from every attack of the enemy. To, God, to call God our shield means two specific things. He protects us in time of doubt and he rescues us in time of danger. Notice that God doesn't say, I will give you a shield, but I am your shield. The very God of creation says that he will be our shield, which means we have a shield that is omnipotent, universal, and eternal. That shield cannot be defeated. It is as strong as God himself. We could not be in a better position. Who can defeat us when God himself is our shield? The great message is certainly clear. If God is your shield, you have no reason to fear. It has been said that a Christian is immortal until his work on earth is done. That statement means nothing can harm you without God's permission. Not cancer, not AIDS, not bankruptcy, not theft, not a physical disability, not the loss of your job, not a terrible accident, not the death of a child, not any of a thousand other sorrows that afflict the children of God. But Christians are not immune to sadness. What happens to others also happens to us. The difference is this. We know that God protects us from harm so that nothing can touch us that doesn't first pass through his hands of love. That knowledge doesn't mean we won't weep or we don't suffer. Far from it. But it is the basis for the statement that we sorrow not as those who have no hope. Found in 1 Thessalonians 1.13. Our sorrow is different precisely because we hope in God. 
A missionary once reported how she had nearly been put in jail when a hostile lawyer began harassing her in the local Christian hospital. He objected to the fact that the hospital openly did evangelism along with its compassionate medical care. Seeking a pretext for legal action, the lawyer accused the hospital of illegally selling intravenous fluids to its patients. It wasn't true, but that didn't matter. For nearly 10 years, the case bumped up and down in the court system of that country. At one point, it appeared likely that the missionary might either be thrown in jail or forced to leave the country. I'm going to shut down this hospital, the lawyer chortled, and you're going to jail or I'll have you deported. To which the missionary replied, you can do nothing to me except what my God permits you to do. That's a perfectly biblical answer. Our God is a shield around his people. Nothing can touch us except that which God permits. That brings us back to the central issue. Why did God wait so long to give Abraham a son? Abraham was 75 when God first spoke to him and 100 when Isaac was finally born. He was almost 85 when God came to him and said, fear not. After all these years, God still wasn't ready to answer Abraham's prayers. Abraham was old, but he would be older yet before Isaac was born, finally born. Of all the questions that plague the people of God, none is so vexing as the question of unanswered prayer. We know God loves us and has a good plan for our lives. Why then does God take so long to answer our deepest, most heartfelt prayers? From Abraham's experience, we can suggest three answers. One, to develop perseverance. Two, to ensure that God alone gets the glory. And three, to deepen our trust in God. To put it very simply, it would be too easy if God answered all our prayers the first time we prayed them. Not only would we take God for granted, we would also develop a pretty shallow faith. There was once a woman stuck in a difficult job situation. She worked with a colleague who had a reputation for being an easygoing nice guy. But he's not like that behind the scenes, she reported. Every time she had a good idea, he would either steal it or complain to the boss. And since his job was more important than hers, he would always win. He also used threats and intimidation to get his way. He thought only of himself and how he could get ahead, and he didn't mind being ruthless if that's what it took to get what he wanted. Sound familiar? Every job probably has a person who answers to that description. When asked if she planned on leaving her position, she gave a very wise answer. I know that God put me here and gave me the talent to do my job. If he wants to move me, that's fine, but I'm not going to try to do it myself. I'm sure God can use me in this position, and I want to learn everything he's trying to teach me. Here's a woman whose faith is growing stronger through a difficult situation. Every day she is given new opportunities to trust God and to respond graciously to an unkind coworker. Meanwhile, she prays for God to work in her and through her, and if necessary, to change her situation. God may eventually answer her prayers either by moving her to a new job or, re or by removing the other person. But that may not happen for months or years. But until then, that woman is developing her faith and trust as she patiently waits on the Lord. When Paul wrote about Abraham's story, he mentioned this point prominently. In Romans 4, 19 through 21, it says, Without weakening in his face, he, placed, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and that of Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he'd promised. 
Not only did Abraham have to wait 25 years for an answer to his prayers, but he also had to suffer the humiliation of his own failed schemes. Immediately after God spoke to him in Genesis 15, he agreed with Sarah to sleep with her maidservant Hagar in hopes of conceiving a child through her. It worked and Ishmael was born. But this short-sighted attempt to help God out backfired and brought sadness and heartache to everyone involved. God often delays his answer so that we'll have plenty of opportunities to fail using our own resources. Only then does God act. But when he does, he demonstrates that he alone is responsible for answering our prayers and that he alone must get the glory. I think that's why Hebrews 11 gives more space to Abraham's story than to any other Old Testament hero. He is the preeminent man of faith in the Bible. When, he, when we read his story and see how long he waited, 25 years, we gain a new perspective on our own situation. If Abraham had to wait, it should not surprise us that we will often have to wait a long time for the fulfillment of our dreams and the answers to our prayers. And as with Abraham, waiting is not bad if it causes us to deepen our trust in God, to learn more about his character. God's answer to fear is not an argument or a formula. It's a person. That's why he said to Abraham, fear not, I am your shield. God himself is the final answer to every fear of the human heart. Have you ever wondered why God called himself the name I am in the Old Testament? Above all else, it means that God is eternally existent and therefore all creation depends on him. God stands alone. No one can be compared to him. He's complete in himself. God doesn't need us, but we desperately need him. Think of it this way. To say that God is great, I am, means that when we come to him, he is everything we need at exactly that moment. It's as if God is saying, I am your strength. I am your courage. I am your health. I am your hope, your provider, your defender, your deliverer. I am your forgiveness. I am your joy and I am your future. God is saying to you and me, I am whatever you need whenever you need it. He is all sufficient for every crisis. So what's the takeaway? Let's look at four principles that will move us from fear to faith. One, faith focuses on God, not on your problems. Think of Abraham. The past argued against his ever having a child. So did the present. His only hope lay in the promises of God for the future. As long as he looked back, he would never have faith to believe in God. His only hope was to step out into the future, trusting that somehow, some way, God would keep his promises. Two, faith trusts in God's timing, not your own. So many of our struggles with fear start right here. Deep down, we fear that God has somehow made a mistake in his dealings with us. Like Abraham, we have waited and waited, sometimes for years on end. Even though we may have seen many remarkable answers to prayer, the one thing that means the most to us has not been granted. Certain people pray faithfully week after week for their loved ones to be saved. Sometimes for seven years, right? Sometimes they seem interested in spiritual things and then their interest suddenly disappears. Where's God? Why doesn't he answer the fervent, heartfelt prayers of his people? Of the many answers that might be given to that question, one answer must be that God's timing and ours are quite different. Sometimes it seems like we live in one time zone and God lives in another. Three, 
Faith grows by believing in God in spite of your circumstances. Sometimes our circumstances make it easy to believe in God. Other times we have to struggle. When we don't understand that it's a perfect opportunity to trust, what else can we do? We know that God is good and he works all things together for good for those that love him. That's all things together. That doesn't necessarily mean that he will make all circumstances good, but that God will take those circumstances and bring good from them. If we are trusting God's goodness, then we know that he will sustain us through the circumstances, and in some way, we will be the better for it. We continue to acknowledge that God is good and keep our focus on him. That's faith rising above circumstances to lay hold of the eternal promises of God. Number four, faith obeys God one step at a time. This principle is often overlooked by those seeking to do God's will. God promises a child, and Abraham desperately wanted to see the fulfillment of that promise. So what does God tell him to do? In Genesis 15, he says, round up the animals for a sacrifice. How do you get from there to the nursery? Abraham doesn't have a clue, and God doesn't tell him a thing. But Abraham now has a choice. He can choose to obey God, round up the animals, and get ready for a sacrifice, even though it doesn't seem to connect with the son of his dreams. Or he can argue with God and decide to take matters into his own hands. God weaves an unseen. We slight the near in favor of the far, shirking the duties of today because we are dreaming about some distant tomorrow. But until we have done what God has called us to do today, we will never be prepared for what he wants us to do tomorrow. In the end, 99% of life turns out to be a humdrum, ordinary routine. It's the same old thing day after day. Yet out of the humdrum, God is weaving an unseen pattern that will one day lead us in a new direction. Faith takes the next step, whatever it is, and walking with God wherever he leads us. Sometimes it will make sense, other times it won't. But we still have to take that step if we're going to do God's will. Everything this sermon is about comes down to one simple question. Can God be trusted to do what's right? If the answer is yes, then we can face the worst that life has to offer. If the answer is no, then we're no better off than the people who have no faith at all. In fact, if the answer is no, or if we're not sure, then do we really have any faith at all? I've chosen to believe because I must. My father died 34 years ago. I came face to face with the ultimate unanswerable question of life. I didn't know then why my dad had to die. At 52, or why you'd have to leave my mom without a husband. And his three kids without a father. I had no clue about what God was doing. In the years since then, I've learned a lot about life. 
but I must say that I still don't understand. Why my father had to die at such a young age. And leave me without his leadership and companionship. Doesn't make any more sense to me now than it did then. I'm sorry. I'm older and maybe even wiser. But in the one question that really matters to me, I don't have an answer. But I've learned since then that faith is a choice you make. Sometimes you choose to believe because of what you see. Often you believe in spite of what you see. As I look at the world around me, many things remain mysterious and unanswerable. But if there is no God, and if he's not good, then nothing at all makes sense. I've chosen to believe because I believe because I must believe I truly have no other choice. The pioneer missionary J. Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission in 1865 during the terrible days of the Boxer Rebellion around the turn of the 20th century. When missionaries were being captured and killed, he went through such agony of soul that he couldn't pray. Writing in his journal, he summarized his spiritual condition this way. I can't read. I can't think, and I can't pray, but I can trust. There will be times when we can't read the Bible. Sometimes we won't be able to focus our thoughts on God at all. Often we won't even be able to pray. But in those moments when we can't do anything else, we can still trust in the loving purposes of our Heavenly Father. Fear not, no one knows what a day may bring. Who knows if we'll even make it through this week. But God is faithful to keep every one of his promises. Nothing can happen to us except it first passes through the loving hands of our God. If your way is dark, keep on believing. His eyes on the sparrow and I know he's watching you. Let's pray. Father, um, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you sustain us, uh, that you hold us up, that you carry us through. Um, we thank you for the salvation that you provided us in Jesus and that he was able to mend that fence that we broke, uh, that we can have this relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells each of us, that lights our way, that guides us where you'd have us to go. Help us, Lord, to submit to you in spite of our fear, uh, in spite of our circumstances, understanding that you truly are a good father, that you care for us, that you love us. And even though bad circumstances, things that we can't, don't seem like we can even get through sometimes, that you're still there, that you that you will sustain us, that your promises are still good and that there at the end of the road, you're waiting on us. And uh, Lord, we, we look forward to that day. Uh, I often would say I, I hasten that day. Uh, 
Lord, we just, we just thank you for who you are. And thank you for loving us. And thank you for opening that door to salvation through Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. The invitation to come to Jesus is always open until it's not. I listened to a, a song yesterday by Cody Johnson. Until you can't. You have opportunity until you can't. And that time comes that I can't or that door's not open anymore. So we're not going to sing an invitation to him, but I want you to know that, that that door's always open until it's not. When you leave this life, that door's not open anymore. So if you've got a decision you need to make, you need to make it today because you don't know what today brings or tomorrow. Anyway, thank you for your graciousness and putting up with me. And uh, God bless you all. Chris, thank you very much for uh, sharing your testimony. Laura, you too. And I just, I hope that we maybe can kind of get to that more. And for me, anyway, it's that it's where the rubber meets the pavement. It's where our faith becomes real when you see how God's worked in somebody else's life and they're willing to share it. So, forgive me for my emotional breakdown, but uh, that showed up 34 years ago. So, I think you understand why. Thank you again.